and welcome to Inside Writing, the Faber Academy podcast. My name is George Miller, and this is the third in a new series of podcasts recorded at the Faber Academy on the fourth floor of Faber's offices in the heart of Bloomsbury. The aim behind these podcasts is simple. If you're a writer struggling to get started, overcome a particular hurdle, or reach the finishing line with your novel, we hope these conversations with writers and editors will give you practical advice suggestions for reading, and maybe also a dash of inspiration to help you make progress. And just as important, we hope they'll make entertaining listening, and remind you that all writers come up against obstacles from time to time. In each podcast, we'll tackle a theme chosen by one of my guests, and focus a discussion around a text they've selected, which you can read before or after the programme. My guests in this programme are Maggie G, author of a dozen novels, with a new one, Virginia Woolf in Manhattan, out next summer, and fellow novelist Antonia Honeywell, whose debut novel, The Ship, will be published in early 2015. Maggie chose as a theme for this podcast, Creating Other Worlds, and as a text to frame our discussion, her 1998 dystopian novel, The Ice People. But before we got on to that, I asked my guests what attracts them, as readers, to the worlds that other writers create. Oh, I've got to be honest and say, if you want the truth, I usually go looking for specific books or authors. I mean, occasionally a cover will intrigue me. But if I'm looking for specific subjects, I'm looking for non-fiction. So I don't look at fiction like that because I think it's the voice that fascinates me. And also following an author. I like to follow authors from the beginning and see how they evolve. But with a new author, it's a matter of, of sampling a page and seeing if the voice resonates. That's true, and I do look at new new authors, often if I've been intrigued by a review, and it would be the writing, honestly. It would be the writing of the first three pages that I like, and that make me think, I want to hear this voice going on. And I felt that with Antonia Honeywell's novel, certainly. It's got a great voice, very distinctive, very confident, and rather, rather timeless, I think it's true to say which is intriguing. It's as if you're going, to, you're going to be drawn into a fable, which I liked. I'm very eclectic. I like lots of different kinds of writing. So it's not that I'm focused on this kind of voice or that one. Yeah, I'm here to be wooed by the, the writer. And Antonia, Maggie gives a, a new writer three pages to, to woo her. How, how do you judge and how, how long do you give a novel before you decide whether it's for you or not? Um, I, I haven't yet not finished a novel. I will finish anything I've started. I'm hoping that as my writing career hopefully takes off um, I'll get already now after after the publication deal I'm in a different position than I was before it I'm getting I'm being made a lot more aware of up-and-coming writers and that's very exciting so I'm still too excited for everybody who's in this place um, to not finish what what they're what they're reading if I'm just browsing in a bookshop I think covers are far more important than they should be I do find myself drawn to a, a beautiful cover, an interesting cover, an intriguing cover. And I do always read the blurb on the back. I, I need to feel, if I'm going to carry on with it, I need to feel that it's going to give me something other than what I'm expecting. Maggie, you've chosen as your theme for this podcast, creating other worlds. And I wondered if you could just introduce that, perhaps, first of all, by reading an extract from your novel, The Ice People. Okay, The Ice People is set in the mid-21st century and was written um, near the end of the last one. And I was looking to a future where our relationship with machines would have changed, where silicon life would be doing rather well at the expense of carbon life, uh, where 
a kind of mutual antagonism between men and women would have grown so that the genders would be living segged in men with men and women with women. Fertility would have dropped and there would have been a complete breakdown of technology rather similar to that in Antonia's The Ship, a wild world. And here my hero is probably in his 60s and he's looking back on his youth. And this is Saul, a male narrator who tells this book. I, Saul, teller of tales, keeper of doves, slayer of wolves, shall tell the story of my times, of the best of days and the end of days, of the new white world that has come upon us, for whoever will read it, for whoever can read. I'm sitting in the half dark by the fire. A circle of eyes reflects the firelight. The wild children surrounding me, not a circle really, too regular. They crowd and bulge outwards and fight and crow. They're eating something, that familiar smell. Delicious, because all food is delicious, then fatty, sweetish, sickening. They see I'm writing, their eyes flicker. Beyond them it's black to the horizon, where the afterglow of sunset is brighter than before. The unearthly radiance beyond is coming closer, like the deep new cold, a ring of fire from a ring of ice. I'm an old man now, old for these times, over sixty. Not long ago people lived more than twice as long, if they were rich and lucky enough, not to be terminated in the easy days, the long hot days, when there were so many human beings. Thank you very much indeed. When you introduced that, Maggie, you, you summarised it very, very neatly in the ways in which the world had changed. But I imagine when the novel was taking shape in your imagination, it was a more organic, a slower process, and it wasn't as neatly schematic as, as you managed to sum it up for us there. Uh, what interested me, what were the, the themes were that climate change, the climate change worries are usually set in a very small amount of time. And when you start getting interested in climate change, you realise that there have been there are long cycles, that regular, reg, fairly regular cycles, and that the Earth is more in ice than in in temperate times. So, I mean, we're talking about maximum twenty thousand years of temperate weather, and then probably a hundred thousand years of ice age. And so, I got interested in whether if we were at the end of a temperate period with global warming, then possibly the ice would come back. And this only became a possible idea for a novel when I realised that it happens over 20 years. It happens very fast and ice age comes quickly and you can deal with things that happen in 20 years. Um, you can't deal with things that happen in maybe 150 years. Having had that idea and having had the realisation that this could work on human terms, how do you then begin to, to sketch out and to think through all the dimensions that you have to when you are creating a, a different world, a different reality? I am a believer in research. I did masses of research. Research is fun, isn't it, Antonia? I mean, you know, as an adult, it's brilliant to get a chance to do lots of reading. So I read masses about machine life. I read the enthusiasts for machines like Dyson. I read, you know, there's a whole movement in the States and elsewhere that really sees we are moving towards a singularity where it'll be great because machines will take over and run the world much better. So I read that. Um, I read a huge amount about climate change. And then I, I laid it all aside and I just started letting the story come to me. I used film theory, 
I use Sid Field's textbook on film, and I, I plan the novel chapter by chapter, scene by scene, and then I had something easier to write. But it's not the way I normally operate. Antonio, your, your first novel is coming out at the beginning of 2015. Maybe you could say a little bit about what kind of world it is set in and how, how that came about. Did you share Maggie's approach to, to doing a lot of research up front and then, then sketching out the story? I certainly do a lot of research. I don't really see how you can write any novel without really getting your teeth into what you're writing about. But um, like Maggie, putting it aside then, letting it evolve in your mind before you come to the novel, um, I think is, is really important. With th this novel started as, as an idea, which is very, I have written other novels not that have not been published. So I think very few people have their first published novel is the first novel they've written. I think that's a very fortunate person who manages to achieve that. I didn't achieve that. So my, my previous novel, for example, was historical. That was a much more closely planned thing that much, much needed to be, had, it had a specific story. It was all tied to specific events in history. Whereas this one started as an idea, it started as, you know, what is our responsibility as a, a very developed nation to the times in which we're living. In the story, what happens is that a, an incredibly wealthy man who's in a position to do it creates a, a sanctuary for the people in the world that he considers worthy, people who have proved themselves through good deeds, for example, um, through caring for their fellow man rather than caring for money. And by rescuing those people, he hopes to create um, a society in which he's to be happy for his daughter to grow up. That's where the idea started. And then the, the idea of having a, an enormous cruise ship, you know, these floating cities that are luxurious, wonderful places to live. That, right, okay, he's going to buy a cruise ship. He's going to put these lovely people, because I do believe that people are basically good. Even in bad times, I think, basically we are. We're a race that was created to be nice to each other rather than destructive. What he's done is identify the people who agree with that and put them in a world together, like I say, to make a, a safe environment for his daughter. And I wanted to explore that as a reaction to the times in which we're living now. They are, I think when you actually look out of the window at what austerity is doing to people and what the financial crash very nearly did to people, and it was 2008 when I began to actually put these thoughts into a novel. And I remember sitting with my husband having a terrible night, actually wondering whether our savings would still be there in the morning. It, I think we forget now that we're through it, just how scary that was at the time. Um, you can't walk through London without seeing homeless people on the streets. There are families out there who are going to have a terrible Christmas. I think it's too easy for those of us who aren't in that position to shelter ourselves from it and somehow justify ourselves. So it, that's really what I'm writing about. Where the work came in was in putting the story onto that, write about, make, make the 16-year-old daughter who's the central character a real person not just a cipher for my ideas about social justice. So the first draft was this massive sprawling thing where actually that was how I discovered what the story was going to be. And from then on, it's been a question of chiseling and refining and bringing it down to what I, I hope is an engaging narrative about a real person. It seems to me what creating other worlds enables you to do as novelists is to push people into more extreme circumstances, to, to put them in settings where the tenor of life is just raised several degrees. And so everything becomes much more close to a matter of life and death than, than it is in, in, in most of our comfortable everyday existences. I think what it gives you is a lot of freedom. 
I think that's what I hadn't realised because I'd never written future fiction before. Well, I had actually, but not fully future fiction. I'd written a novel that sort of crept into the future by about a decade. But this being totally in the future, it liberates you from all sorts of things. It liberates you from realism. It enables you to sketch out a pattern more clearly. You can use symbolism in different ways. Though I think, as listening to what Antonia said, and I was thinking, yes, I'm sure you believe that human beings are basically good, but actually in a curious way, your narrative proves different in lots of ways. And trying to set up a utopia, things do go very wrong. And in the same way, there's a utopian, there's a feminist utopian government in the ice people that goes absurdly wrong. And their claims for what they're doing about bringing up children are shown to be completely askew. It's about things being too tidy, isn't it? And I think one of the great things about novels is that they show life as untidy, diverse, rebellious. And in a sense, I know when I was describing this novel and saying, these are the themes, and I wrote it according to a very strict plan, and yet, when you're actually writing, there's a huge element of play and disruption going on. And it's when the characters start doing the things they want to, which are not maybe the things that you have anticipated, that it comes very alive. And okay, in the end, there will be that formal editing and shaping coming back. But I think it should feel very alive. I don't think it matters if it gets a bit messy. When you've written quite a lot of novels, which I have, you tend to have run out of jobs, jobs that you've actually done, because I've been a full-time writer since I was 32 or something. And so actually it's great to have an invented world where you can make things up and have new professions and new occupations because you just need something else. You need something different. You need to renew your work. And in the same way, other worlds, I mean, Sansa Antonia has written in many different forms, the five novels that she's written. And in the same way, even going to another country, you know, traveling to Uganda, writing about New York or Turkey, it's another way of renewing your writing by writing about things that do not come directly from your life experience. And there comes to most writers a time when they need to do that. Is that feeling of liberation one that you recognise, Antonio? Yes, very much so. I think as writers, we're always looking at wherever we're going as, a, as another world. I mean, that the novels that Maggie and I are discussing now are very obviously about another world. They're set in a future which re- reflects our concerns about now. And in in a sense, you're never going to write a futuristic novel without it being about where we are now. That's what you're actually writing about. But yes, just even just walking down the street without going to New York um, or I'd like to go to New York. (laughs) Um, You're you're making stories, you're making sense out of other worlds. A novel must have that uh, internal integrity. So while you're busy playing with another world, you have to give it its own interior logic according to which the characters act so that the reader can orientate themselves within that. And I think when a reader can really orientate themselves within the world you've created, that's where the liberation comes in. Your world has to be very closely imagined. The, The detail must be there. Otherwise, the reader is going to be lost. Maggie, in The Ice People... Of course, you're writing about how climate has changed and you're writing about how technology has changed. But most of all, you're writing about how people have changed, how those things have operated on the people and quite profound social changes, the way that the sexes interrelate have taken place. You're taking things presumably that you saw in the late 90s, but you're sort of winding them forward in your imagination and thinking, where might these conceivably go if other things happen? Yeah, I think I was noticing a kind of female sexism that was like a mirror image of male sexism. And actually, 
feminism is not supposed to be female sexism, that's not really the idea. So I think I wanted to have an image of that. I absolutely agree with Antonia that in writing about the future, we are writing about the present insofar as we are taking things about the present and exaggerating those trends in a dramatic way and even in a fun way. I mean, I certainly enjoyed writing The Ice People a lot. I also really relate to something Antonia said about even walking along the street you see something you don't expect and another world opens because that's a bit like what um, poets of the 1930s and 40s, W.H. Auden and Christopher Isherwood talked about, the other town. This was an imaginary town that existed beneath the real Cambridge that was full of invented characters, that was full of people who had been ignored or marginalised. And I think writers are sort of always looking for this other town, the story that isn't the official story. And indeed, that's the theme of both Antonia Honeywell's and my book, the story that's being told by the government is not the story that the people are living and know about. And I think somehow the writer's business is to try and operate against official stories told by journalists or scientists or anyone with authority. We sort of don't have authority except imaginative authority, so we can be a bit irresponsible and that can be quite useful, I think. In a sense, you're almost the moral conscience. You can say things that can't be said elsewhere. And I think I think the effect that austerity is having on a huge number of people in this country, that's not what we're seeing reflected in the newspapers. And I think that's where, where the writer can come in with the imaginative life, the imaginative response to what you're seeing can actually be telling a real truth. I think there's a there's another similarity between the two books, and it's something you often see in dystopian or utopian fiction. The young are rebellious in both books, and the young have a, a there's a kind of they're given an authenticity of view that challenges what their parents tell them, what the adults, the successful adults, are always telling them, and it's quite fun to use a teenager's viewpoint or a. In my book, there is a child who has been messed up by Luke, um, which I think means light, or I'm pretending it does. And he's basically, both his parents have pulled him in different directions, his father towards his African roots, his mother towards being a sort of de uh, a degendered boy. And he has to find his own way, and his own way is something completely different, which is sort of trying to make a new, uh, a new, I suppose, sort of fertile, natural, it sounds terrible, but it's it's not done quite like that. They're the wild children, and they're a, a kind of alternative social social form of social disorganisation, stroke organisation. And there's a sense in Antonia's book that the daughter, who's the only person on the ship who hasn't been chosen by her father for being good, the daughter is the subversive influence who sees things differently, who sees her father as not a sort of godlike figure. Yeah, very much so, and and I think. I think teenagers are fascinating to write about. My heroine's 16, she's been brought up, her parents have consciously protected her from the decay of society around her. And that's been their job as parents. But what that's given her is a world in which the deprivation isn't a reality. It is not a reality because she has not experienced it herself. Therefore, she's able to make different decisions than the people who on the ship who have all been through the most awful experiences and have been rescued. She's lacking that slice of gratitude 
that allows her to put up with what is actually imprisonment, even though it's an incredibly luxurious experience for them. They've got books, they've got music, they've got food, they've got security, they've got a safe place to sleep, they've got the ability to form friendships, which was never safe in this broken society they've left behind. She had all that. Her parents made sure that they had, she had it. So therefore, without the gratitude burdening her down, she's got, actually got much clearer sight. Well, it, it would be fascinating, Maggie, to imagine what the ice people would be like if it were told by one of those feral children who roam the airport at the, at the end of the, well, at the, at the, the end point of, of the narrative. But you chose to tell it through Saul because that gives you a, it gives you perspective on the unchanged world and, and the changed world. And you must have had to make a lot of decisions about the, the language in which the story could be got across. Yeah, that was a very interesting one. Saul is still a literate hero. I mean, he himself is very literate, and that's what gives him status among the wild boys, because he, he knows things, he can tell stories of what used to be. So knowledge is power, but it's also a source of resentment, and it's also the reason why they will eventually tear him down. The language thing is very interesting, because I have changed some of my decisions, the decisions I made about the Ice People. It's on its third edition, I think. No, second edition, because the first one was just a hardback, and it was almost the same. But I change the language a lot because technology catches up with you. This is a real problem when you're writing about the near future. You know, I wrote it in 98. Well, we're now in 2013. I was saying things happened in 2010 which didn't happen. However, it can go two ways. So I had wrist phones, which I took out and replaced with an obsession with mobiles. But now actually wrist phones seem to be coming back. You're going to be perpetually revising this book. Well, I think... Actually, what I would say is the more classic you can be with your language, the less you neologize, the, the less you come up with new terms, the less it will date. I mean, when you think of the great dystopias, they don't do an awful lot of ne neologizing. It's really best to go with, for example, the screens, I think, was the choice that Antonia made for her devices. And I ended up with the screens too, whereas I had begun with something more complex, I can't remember what. And on the whole, I simplified. But it did seem to me that because you had been sparing with your neologisms, the ones which you did use really counted. So something like segged, meaning the segmentation, or sorry, the segregation of society, and termed, meaning termination of the elderly, really stick in the mind in a way that if you'd littered it with lots of clever little coinages, those would sort of have sunk in perhaps and into the background. They work much better, segged and termed, because they came from real language. They were not self-conscious coinages, they almost came automatically. And I, that's what I would do if I did it again. And I would stick as closely as I could to things that were not less, maybe less fun than the ones that one's made up painstakingly. But um, yeah, you use very classic language, I think, Antonia. I think my, my novel is actually set now. So the whole idea of having to invent new words for something new didn't arise. We, we do all walk around glued to our smartphones um, now that we can get email on it and you know everything else you it's all there so all i've done is take that one step further the main change that's been made by by the military government post the collapse is that because housing is in chaos and the banks have collapsed and nobody can trace ownership to of any house to any one particular person people are now officially in my novel officially known by their email addresses rather than their land addresses which frees up all the property for people to move into you know there's a law where you, if it's empty for seven days you can move into it and it stays yours until you leave it 
in which case somebody else can come in. That's all quite, that, that all becomes anarchy. But you are controlled and traced and known through your email address. Now that actually isn't a massive leap. That didn't require a new word or it, it's, it really seems to me that we are playing towards that as a genuine possibility. If we're thinking about people who are perhaps embarking on, on writing a novel set in an alternate world, world or struggling with a novel they've begun, one thing to be careful of, it seems, would be neologisms and not getting too carried away with that. Are there other pitfalls that you think, Maggie, it would be wise to, to bear in mind for, for writers? I think what's very, very important, more important than in a world that you can say this is Sidcap or this is Sydenham in 1998 or 2013 or whatever, I think it's very important to make it believable. So I think it's perhaps got to have more physical particularity than a novel within a realistic convention. I think it's very important. Um, there is a, a quite a well-known quote, I think it's well-known. It's uh, Marianne Moore, the poet, and it's on the value of imaginary gardens with real toads. And these real, warty, believable, awkward creatures, facts, images, details, I think you've got to be really careful that they're there and not to let it sort of slither into an imaginative vagueness. I think that's, that's very important. That's the first thing. I think it's not enough to have a world. I think you've got to have a human drama that is very powerful. The Ice People is the most narrative of my novels, I think. I think it's got a very strong narrative. And maybe that was because I knew this was set in the future and there had to be something that was very sort of graspable. You said earlier that certain ideas that you started out with, but then when you place the characters in situations, they take on a life of their own. So you can create the world, as you're saying, but then you've got to have breathing human beings, credible human beings in that world. Yes, that's right. And in, in the end, that will be the same in any novel. The, the characters have to have flesh and blood. They need strong emotions. You need, I think, you still need some things that come, go right back to heroic, epic narrative. So I love having scenes with courage or self-sacrifice or these things that we can all relate to. I think we shouldn't be afraid of the big ones. Again, that's something I like very much about this ship. I think it's really important to, however imaginary your world, um, however strong the message you're wanting to get across, it's actually all, at the end of the day, got to be about the characters and how they relate to the world. You know, Maggie's toads, they, they're very important because otherwise you're just giving your reader an idea. You know, here is a world, I am describing this world. There's no motivation for a reader to read that. Why would they? They can imagine worlds of their own. What, what a reader needs is to imagine, to have some way of putting themselves into it. And in Maggie's novel, The Ice People, is a fantastically realised future world that addresses you know, concerns about global warming and climate change, all these things that are very real to us now. But actually, at, at its heart, it's about tension between men and women. It's about a, a man who is trying to find a way of being a man. And what does that mean? Well, that's actually phenomenally relevant to anyone who's a living, breathing human being, uh, man or woman. <laughs> and I, I think a, an aspiring writer, a, a beginning novelist, cannot underestimate how important that is. The idea in its, on its own is not enough. It's got to be rooted to a character and to emotions with which a reader can identify, through which reading they can learn something about themselves. Why else do we read?
Maybe I can round off this podcast by asking each of you if there is a work of speculative fiction or, or dystopia or alternate reality that you would particularly recommend to aspiring writers to go and read and, and think about. Well, I'm going to say Mara and Dan, which I think for, for me is Doris Lessing's greatest work. It's set something like 30,000 years in the future. And the, indeed, the world has tipped back into the ice. And it's really the story of two young people, Mara and Dan, brother and sister, walking up from the south of Africa to the north. It's a wonderful, ambitious, epic work, um, totally believable, riveting. My daughter read it when she was 12 and couldn't put it down. I'm also deeply grateful to Doris Lessing because she published it, thank God, six months after I published The Ice People. <laughs> because if she'd published it first, everyone would have said, Maggie G has copied, etc., etc. So, yeah, it's a wonderful book. Good book and good timing. And Antonia, what about you? I'm assuming that everyone's read 1984. I think you've got to start with 1984 and The Handmaid's Tale, Margaret Atwood's Handmaid's Tale, both absolute wonderful examples of speculative fiction very much rooted in in reality and our own experience but I think um, if an aspiring writer is thinking go Doris Lessing again uh, memoirs of a survivor I think it's interesting that we've both chosen books by by Doris Lessing who died recently and um, I think a lot we all owe Doris Lessing a very great deal she's a wonderful writer and very uncompromising writer so a, a much earlier work of hers is the Mem memoirs of a survivor um, which uh, is about a, a lonely woman living on her own at a time when society, for a never specified reason, has collapsed. And uh, she finds her life invaded by a, a young girl who lives on the other side of her living room wall, which seems to melt as she goes through it. And, and she, the duty of care for this young girl as she grows into a teenager and goes and finds a life in this broken society um, is, is an absolute masterclass in how to make the unreal completely real and totally relevant. It's a wonderful novel. My thanks to my guests, Maggie G and Antonia Honeywell. You can find out more about them and the Faber Academy by visiting faberacademy.co.uk and you can follow the Academy on Twitter, at Faber Academy. I hope you'll join me again soon for the next podcast. But from me, for now, goodbye. Goodbye.